This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Lauren Dean is a storyteller, innovator, New York Times bestselling cookbook author, and one of the food industry's most successful TV producers with four Emmy Awards to her name. She's worked with luminaries from Martha Stewart to Bobby Flay and created numerous TV shows, including the hit The Next Food Network Star. Her richly textured career has been built around giving others a chance to shine. And she's done all this as a self-supporting single mother of two teens. With warmth, humor, and a generous heart, she'll tell you it's grit that's got her through. This is Lauren's really cool story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Lauren Dean, I'm almost giddy that you're here today. We haven't seen each other in so many years. I had the most extraordinary time, really, reviewing your career in the last, I don't know, I think we haven't seen each other in in maybe 15 years, which seems improbable. I'm so in awe, really, of what you've already accomplished, and I know the best is yet to come. But you have won four Emmy Awards. You're a chef. You're a best-selling New York Times bestseller cookbook author of, I believe it's four, well, they Books. weren't all bestsellers, but at least one of them was. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about all of them. Um, you live in the world of television, digital broadcasting. Um, you have a career that I think many people really dream about. But I know it also hasn't been easy. You are um, a mother of two. You have been a single mother, really, for the last uh, 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Raising teens, not easy, and being sort of the ultimate at everything. What I remember about you is that you're a perfectionist, and uh, you work so hard, and, and you drive yourself to distraction. <laughs> yes, if I've got that right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lauren, the way I'd like to start is, in a way I've never started before with anyone, but can you tell me the story of us? <laughs> and yes. how we met and when this all began. Yes. Well, I would not be sitting here, I think, in quite the same context um, if it had not been for you, which is amazing to me. Um, I feel so fortunate. And, you know, I have to say this podcast is amazing. I've been listening to all these all the, all the, these women, all their stories, and it's astounding, the similarities, the striking differences, the relationships the way it's all woven together. And I'm excited that you're doing this and you're going to be telling everyone else's stories too. But our story um, is that I'll do, I also, as I said, I can be didactic. I'll do the condensed version. Um, (laughs) I was a nice Long Island girl who was raised to marry a lawyer or a doctor or not, you know, groomed to be or have a career. Um, I graduated college in 1985. Um, I had an English literature degree. And I thought about law school and thought that would be just a terrible idea after I took the LSATs. (laughs) And so 
I worked in publishing for a little bit and was starving to death. <laughs> um, and I was just sort of a hot mess. I was working at an ad agency where I didn't know what I was doing. I'd hide my work in my drawer at night and go home. And it was a little me too. The men were like, that's okay. Good night. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I knew it was wrong. So I randomly at a family dinner, um, sat next to a cousin of mine who I hadn't really seen. He was 10 years older and he was now a Hollywood uh, DP, director of photography. And I told him my entertaining story about what I was doing. And he said, that's ridiculous. Come work for me. I work in a film. And I became a PA on When Harry Met Sally. Oh, my Which goodness. was, yeah, that was complete nepotism. I was the dumbest person on the set. You know, nobody, <laughs> they took away my uh, walkie-talkie. They tried to lose me in the park. But I digress. So basically, that is how I met my um, my husband on the set. And he said, like, how, who do you know? And I said, how do you know? He said, well, anyone this dumb, you know, has to know someone. But that's so, almost like a Harry Met Sally story was, right there. It was. It and, was one. And, and it was filmed so, at the Rainbow Room, right? Was um, part of it? Uh, yeah, they ha well that and then I was at Katz's is my big claim to fame before I eventually was fired for being the worst PA ever. Um, <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. But somehow I got I know it's a long story. But here I think it's kind of fascinating, it's especially fascinating. now in the millennial time of how people are so structured to go after goals. So my cousin got me another job with the Cobra others, which all my friends hated me. I had no idea about film. I went and got the job as a script supervisor on Miller's Crossing, which is a huge job. And I couldn't even operate the um, stopwatch, you know. And, <laughs> and so I was just mortified. And, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome, which I've had many times, but this was the beginning of it all. So I was there for a couple of days. Uh, the boyfriend from the set flew down, tried to get him a job, couldn't. We just went out eating. And that is when <laughs> I just started eating and eating and eating and fell in love, you know, mm. sort of with food. I also digress to say, which we can get to another point, but I really grew up reading cookbooks as novels. So I was always into food in the 70s when it wasn't cool, when it wasn't hip, when it was really nerdy. And the combination of seeing it rarefied, but seeing it real in New Orleans made me quit the movie and come home and go to cooking school. At night. Wow. And how old were you? At this I point? was 23 or something like that. My family was appalled. You know, <laughs> it was, I went to Peter Cump's cooking school upstairs on the rickety brownstone. It's now the glorious fancy ice, but at the time it was a very small school. But pre prestigious. It was. And Jim mm -hmm. Peterson was my teacher. And I went at night. I couldn't afford to go. I put I would have gone to French culinary, but I couldn't afford it. So I took $5,000, got a credit card, did that, worked it during the day, went to school at night. And then in the meanwhile, would spend most of my money at Knock Waxman's at Kitchen Arts and Letters because um. I was obsessed with history and food and culture. Now it's sort of a known thing to be like that. But at the time, it was – he was the only place you could even find those books – which brings me a long way around to how I met you, which is that I was doing all this in a vacuum alone. I didn't know anyone. I would have dinner parties and cook and things like that. But then I started, you know, I was a huge researcher, pre-internet, pre-Google, you know, on my IBM Selectric. I'm aging myself. <laughs> and... I found uh, the New York Women's uh, Culinary Association. I found the New York Women's uh, his, the Food History. Um, culinary, culinary historians. His, the yes. culinary historians. So the New York culinary historians. So I would start going to those lectures, and I was probably the only person there 
in my generation, I think that was there. Maybe one other woman. And there were all um, – Meryl Evans was there. I stalked her a little bit. And then I <laughs> – you know, so I would read who was there and read their labels and their names. And I would research everybody. And then I realized who you were. And you were a formidable, you know, amazing, exceptionally talented – broke the mold And that, you know, I had never met a woman who had been a chef, been a chef for Maricot, ran the the food – restaurants at Lord and Taylor, where my grandmother used to take me. Um, <laughs> to the birdcage, you and remember to that? to the birdcage, yes. And knew all about the consulting and the rainbow room and everything else and all the work that you had done. And so what I would do, I was the most intimidated, scared person, which I'm now, I'm very outgoing. But at that point, I was just so unhappy and was trying to figure out how can I, you know, not go back to like proofreading books and getting fired by Reynolds Price because I couldn't punctuate very well. And so I would just talk to people and I would volunteer and I would volunteer and I volunteered at Degustibus for Arlene, was like a tray girl at the Macy's things. <laughs> and I would just kept going to the lectures. And finally, after like three events, I just worked up my nerve and said, hi, I'm so impressed by what you've done. And then you looked at me and, I've, you know, I also felt so short and I looked up at you and said, <laughs> you know, I so admire what you're doing. I'm not a restaurant. I know I don't want to cook in a restaurant. Like I had my dream was to go have a Dean and DeLuca. That's why I went mm. to cooking school. Um, but at that point, I found out you really only made your money through the catering part. So I had just started catering to kind of figure out how to do all of that. And so at that point, I told you that I was catering. And then I had also just started food styling. I really didn't know how to food style, but someone <laughs> hired me to be a food stylist. And I have a decent eye, but I am not one of those. I am not Susan Spungen. I'm not someone who can pick up a knife and cut things beautifully, and and it's just artistry. It it was a grind for me to learn and figure out how to do that. Um. So, um. And Meryl had uh, Evans had been asked me to test some recipes for a uh, cookbook for her. So I was doing all these odd jobs, and then I met you, and then you took me to oh my gosh I, it's all coming back now you took me to have an egg salad sandwich at <laughs> you know where your favorite at Eisenberg's, at Eisenberg's. Uh, and so we sat there and you talked and you said well what do you want to do and I said I want to write cookbooks I want to do this I want to do that just I'll do anything I can and he said okay I'll keep you in mind and then two days later Betty Fussell called me who is the most amazing person. Every single person should go and run and Google her right now to understand everything about her. Um, and she was had just written a story of corn and she needed someone to test corn recipes. So you recommended me to be a recipe tester. Another thing I had never done or had no idea oh, no. how to do, but I figured <laughs> I would do my best. And oh. so I did that and it she was amazing and taught me so much and and gave me a lot of courage. Um and so then I started styling more and then you called me when you were just doing your first one two three book, I think was right. the recipes book Recipes One Two Three. Recipes mm -hmm. One Two Three, which was decades ahead of its time. Um and 
we went on a show called Our Home at the Lifetime Studios out in Astoria, and you had asked me to help you with the food styling prep. And we had done like one or two things, and one thing went really well. And then the next time, I don't know if I was cocky or nervous or a combination or just foolish, and we had to make these um, pastry uh, breadsticks, you know, like the cheese straws. Mm-hmm. Now, another food stylist would have come with them already perfectly baked and had all the stages and prep, but I just decided I could make them there and they would be better because I was so inexperienced. And you're about to go on and you got there and you looked at me with this horror that you were trying to control because, you know, it all you had to go on TV, which is, you know, nerve wracking enough, especially in those days. Uh, when they gave you no time. And so I just like apologetically mumbled and just kept making them and like kept my head down and making them and um, was afraid to like ever call you again after that or check in. I was like so mortified. Well, Lauren, I mean, I had done. this is remarkable. <laughs> and I mean, I um, so appreciate the honesty of the, of the story. The reason you're on the show is to talk about your life. And I'm feeling right now that this is like, this is my life um, because you are reminding me of things I don't remember at <laughs> all. And I probably felt like you did a little bit of imposter syndrome. We didn't know what I was doing. Uh, at the time, that was television was very new for me. And I was co-hosting that mm-hmm. or doing the food segment with Mark Summers on, right. on Our Home on Lifetime Television. Um, so it I was going to ask you when we fell out of love. Was was it then? Well, I think it was. I think that I think that was probably it. I mean, I think I had also was doing some writing for you, and I think that I was just mortified and so angry with myself. And then years later, when I was began to be a serious television producer and did know what I was doing, I had so much more empathy for you. I thought, oh my God, she had her own nerves to worry about and here and then she had to contend with like, you know, warped cheese straws. Um, so I think I just sort of pulled back and then I right after that got a job as the first sous chef at the Food Network. Again, totally did not know what I was doing, but nor did very many people there at the time. It was kind of like Judy and, you know, uh, Let's throw on a show, you know, as right. if the Food Network, the food network was just was getting six months old. Yeah, I actually had sold a sitcom at a certain point about what it was like in the beginning of there um, to Spielberg, although my cousin said, like, don't quit your day job because <laughs> television doesn't happen, which was the best advice. So I stayed there. Um, so, yeah, so I became very busy with my job and then had a full time job. And then I think we just sort of, you know, would see each other at events and smile. And then by then there were a few more women in that kitchen and I started to finally have a community as well mm. that wasn't, you know, just, you know, a, a, a decade ahead or so of me or in some cases, you know, many. Well, you're telling so many poignant truths about what it was like to be a woman in the food world, really in, we're talking, well, you graduated in the 80s, so this was a little in bit. In 85, yes. Yeah, so I graduated culinary school in 91. I mean, my family was appalled. They thought it was like a blue collar thing not to do. Ironically, my brother was a businessman in college and decided he wanted to make a lot of money and law school would take too long. So asked my dad, who's the most successful person you know? And it was a guy who owned Jewish delis on Long Island. So my brother was a restaurateur. Like, that was fine. You know, um, (laughs) he could go off and do that. But 
the fact that I was actually cooking and catering in the kitchen, they just thought was ridiculous. So fascinating because you really hit every single major issue for women mm-hmm. at that time, right? It was okay for guys to do it. Um, having a career in the culinary world was not considered a classy thing to do. My parents felt the same way, I must tell you, but 10, 15 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um the fact that it really is about knocking on doors, taking chances, going up and speaking to people, networking, being frightened, um, you know, all of these things. And you are just the most extraordinary example of what it means to be successful after having this very kind of eclectic, crazy beginning. So i just so delighted to hear the story of the industry in the very, very beginning. So I, I appreciate it so no, much. Thank you. It was tough. I mean, I will tell you not to slam him, but you know, Jim Peterson's a brilliant man and a great writer. He said to me, as a teacher, he was not encouraging. And he said, I guess you could claw your way up through Dean and DeLuca if you try hard enough. I mean, mm. it was not supportive right. at all. It was not a supportive, you know, atmosphere. And, and it was a competitive industry, but I had Georgia Downard, Susan Stockton. You know, I did have women that you were found your very yeah. I found them, and and it was it was tough, you know. But you and and you were not making a lot of money to live in New York City, easy, you know. Either you're talking fifteen dollars, twenty dollars an hour, you know. And I was self supporting at that point. I think my um, my ex husband wasn't putting him through school at the same time or something mm. crazy like that. So it was tough. And a lot of restaurant work is also night work. So there was an issue, especially in New York at a certain period of time, that it was not cool to take a subway late at night. And no, it, was it was before Uber and taxis were expensive. And women just had to make so many different choices and deal with very uh, different issues than than men did. I also am excited, Lauren, to, to reconnect with you. I'm excited about this show because I really feel this is really the most exciting year for women in food. It's taken 40 years, and you're a big part of the story. So when we come back, I want to hear about the very beginning, who was in your kitchen, what it was like growing up, and to talk about some of the remarkable accomplishments that you've made. Here's a cooking tip to share. This from my guest, Lauren Dean. So I have a tip. It's kind of probably a plug, too, for my friend, if that's okay, for um, tahini. I'm a big tahini fan, and I'm a big fan of Seed and Mill, um, my friend Rachel's company. Um, But besides making an amazing dressing where you can add lemon and oil and a little warm water, which is the secret so that you're not adding way too much oil to the dressing, and a million herbs. You can use that as a salad dressing. You can make it thicker as a dip. You can marinate your sheet pan chicken in it and then broil it. And then I will not get the proportions right, so you can look online, but you can make a dessert basically by just melting great chocolate and tahini almost as a ganache to make truffles, which I do um, for Passover um, and for the Jewish New Year, or you could swirl it into your brownies. From Lauren's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So Lauren, 
the reason that we connected uh, again after all this time, um, and I don't think I will ever make a pastry, a cheese straw without <laughs> thinking about you uh, from now on. But I saw this amazing article that you wrote in a magazine I love and really respect called Cherry Bomb. And you wrote an article called The Cookbooks That Changed My Life. I was so surprised and so delighted to be one of the cookbooks that you chose. Uh, and you talked about recipes one, two, three. And just I, I hope everyone can get a copy of this because it is such a fascinating beautifully curated list of books that tell a bigger story uh, and tell your story in in many respects. Uh, We can talk about the list later and why you did choose those particular books. But right now, let's really find out about you. You mentioned something about growing up in Long Island. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the kitchen. I will tell you. Who was there? Okay. So (laughs) I grew up on Long Island. Um, My mom was a great cook, more of the classic 1970s gourmet type. She made every – back in the day in the New York Times Magazine, the back page was sort of the recipe. So every week, unless it was something outrageous or for whatever reason, my mom basically cooked and made everything she could out of that magazine. So she was very adventurous and would go out. And my dad – was the type um, who could go in the refrigerator, there'd be an onion and old bread and, I don't know, uh, some sort of weird olives, and he would just make (laughs) anything taste good. So he was just an intuitive cook. So I really was fortunate. I had, like, the precision, you know, and the knowledge base. My mother had all those cookbooks that I grew up reading. I mean, Paula Wolfert was, like, I read as a novel, you know, was Mm. – Diana Kennedy, um, like everyone, it's funny, Julia, 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 but that wasn't for me. I had like some obscure cookbooks that came up from restaurants in the city she went to, and we would visit the galleries. We would go to Soho when it wasn't a mall and um, to see art. And then honestly, I think the art was just a pretext so that we could go to Dean and DeLuca and sort of <laughs> worship in the store, which is sadly gone. Um, and I would just roam the aisles and, and, and that to me was like a jewelry store was a toy store. It was my favorite place. So, you know, I cooked, uh, the first thing I cooked was a dirt pie when I was two and ate it, which was a a problem, literally dirt in a bowl. (laughs) I thought it would be a dirt pie and I could eat it. So I guess I have imagination. Um, and you know, then I did the requisite Girl Scout cookies, you know, Girl Scout schools, all the cook-offs and bake-offs and all those things, um, and we had, um, you know, lots of 1970s, lots of steak, lots of, you know, mm-hmm. certain chicken dishes, um, but then more obscure, fancy, fancy food in my house. Um, did your mother use canned or frozen vegetables? She did. We had cans, but a lot of them really just sat there. I think when she moved 20 years later, like the Lasor peas <laughs> were still there. Um, we had a butcher um, and he, she and her friend would share, you know, they'd like buy a half a cow or whatever and have it butchered and no share that. way. Yeah, which to me was like now that I think about it, it was such a funny thing. It okay. was not common no. in my neighborhood. And we, I grew up in Massapequa. It was a very wacky place. It was um, just 
a wacky bunch of people came out of there, like Jerry Seinfeld, the Baldwin <laughs> brothers, Twisted Sister, the Stray Cats, Jen, uh, all from Massapequa. yeah, all from. There was once an article in the Times like what was in that water. So it was like a very, very middle class, but we were upper middle class, but we were on the water on the canal, and my dad had a drugstore in Long Beach, so. You know, we were on boats and lots of seafood and clams, mm. and we'd go to um, the lobster farm in Long Beach. And uh, so you, you know, were really foodie, yeah, we, we food family. and we, you know, we grilled mm. and all that stuff. <laughs> now, my grandmothers, may they rest in peace. One of them was a great Jewish cook. You know, great Jewish cook. Some of her recipes are in the cookbook I wrote, Kitchen Playdates. But it's funny when you get your secret Jewish family recipes, I discovered they always in- included something like Lipton's onion soup or um, for the brisket or Grandma B's uh, mushroom barley, which was so good. But you need this tube of manischewitz that I can still <laughs> barely find. So they had more of the, she had more of the shortcuts. My other grandmother, who was Sylvia, who was very influential and supportive and took me to Europe and mm. uh, museums, was probably one of the worst cooks in the world. <laughs> um, we would literally go to McDonald's, which we never even really went to, on the way and on the way home for any dinner, any Jewish holiday. She'd make this soup needles and you could like literally like knock them on the table, <laughs> break your teeth. She refused, didn't see the need of salt. And the last famous story about her is she once tried to cook out of the New York Times with a shake, uh, lemon shaker pie. Mm-hmm. Looked beautiful. We were all shocked <laughs> until we took a bite and, you know, it, our wincing. And she said, oh, well, I decided it really didn't need the sugar. So it was just <laughs> like, okay, you just arbitrarily decided that. So fortunately, she was well traveled, and we would go. She would go to Sahadi, so there would always be, you know, apricots and hummus and and like things to snack on. And my grandfather was Romanian, so you had some decent Romanian food, mm. but could not cook. So those are the women in my family. In I mean, this is, this is absolutely a riot. And the thing about the your mother and a, a neighbor sharing a, half of a cow and having this butcher in common is priceless. This is just a great story. Yeah, we, we, we always have a fight about this because we grew up eating raw chop meat. Like my mother would buy a pound of chop meat for hamburgers and then like a half a pound to just sit there and snack, like snacked on chop meat. To this day, and recently we were at my brother's house and she was starting and he's like, you cannot do that anymore. Like even if I buy good beef, you cannot mm. just start randomly eating raw beef anymore, mom. And she's 79, she's still president of a bank. Like she's like, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Did you say your mother's the president of a bank? She's the vice president of a bank. It's, she's retiring this year, but yeah, 79. Very impressive. <laughs> Eating and- raw, maybe it was the raw meat all along. <laughs> Actually, we did that too. My mother also loved it. We put a little coarse salt on it, and it was really a great yeah, a great treat. Uh, does your brother still have the deli? No, my brother, I'm very proud to say, is my brother opened a deli that's now gone on the Upper West Side called Artie's Deli. Um, that's your brother? Yes, Jeffrey Bank. That's my brother. <laughs> no he idea. had done it in tandem with a la carte restaurant group. And those are a lot of those are my grandmother's recipes. My uncle went to CIA when it was in New Haven and was a is a um more of a banquet a hotel caterer uh chef. So he came and helped my brother open the deli. Um, and that was amazing for many years. And then he became the CEO of uh, Carmine's and Virgil's. And he sold Artie's. And he's actually now, he bought 
um, Carmine's and Virgil's, and he's the owner of the restaurant group, which is unbelievable. I'm very proud of him. Your brother. Yes. It must have also been the raw beef, right? Uh, no, you know, the thing is, my brother is all about front of the house, as he will tell you. Front of the house? Front of the house. He is a he was selling Tic Tacs for a dollar attack in first grade. He sold all my Girl Scout cookies. Like, I was always embarrassed to ask people for money. And he's just, you know, I did do some work for him last year. We decided it's not a family business. Like, you know, I, I helped a little bit when they were doing um, – they're redoing their website, and I did a video, a promo video for him. But um, he's wonderful, incredibly I supportive of love kids and I. But yeah, and he's built that into. I can't. I don't understand. He thinks that things at a very different scale brain than I do. I cannot have two forty thousand square foot restaurants in Vegas and five other restaurants and two children. Pretty way. remarkable, but. So are your successes. So let's let's fast forward or okay. be very much in the present. Mm-hmm. You have won four Emmy Awards, major TV um, accolades. You have worked with every important celebrity in the world, Martha Stewart, Bobby Flay. T- tell us about that. Um, yeah, so I was really fortunate. Like they say, you know, luck, timing, opportunity, effort, grit is a big word nowadays I use around my kids. You know, I was an animal. I worked really, really hard. I remember hard. that about you. I mean, I worked too hard, to be honest, but I worked really hard. And back then, you really had to. And, and you, you didn't have the context. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have, you know, all of these things you had to do yourself. So when I started this uh, Food Network, I was freelance, and I became the first sous chef, which was amazing because, you know, we made all the food for the chefs before they went on the air. We Back then, you did six shows a day because it was just get it out, get it out, get it out. And most of the chefs from around the world would come. And they. this was 19 – oh, gosh, I'm terrible with years. But let's say it's 1995. They didn't have an entourage. So sometimes they'd come alone with a cooler or they'd <laughs> ask us to source things. So, you know, I had – um, you know, Gary Danko had to teach me how to saddle, you know, prepare a, lamb, a saddle of lamb because it, he needed 10 swap outs. And there was a bunch of women and maybe one poor guy in the kitchen who had to do this. So I wound up getting all of these. It was as if I went to like pay, you know, was getting paid to get taught by all these great people. So I learned a lot, you know, Emerald before he was saying bam, you know, like <laughs> although he said amazing. that very early yes. on. Yes. I mean he? that's how early it was. But you know, Bobby was a huge supporter of my career and I of his um the these guys would get there and this was how I became successful in that I could I could cook, I could get it organized. But then because it was early, the food network started by news producers initially from CNN. These were CNN producers. They weren't food storytellers. Nobody prepped these chefs so the power balance was amazing. You'd get these amazing chefs from around the world would come out there, not know what to say, start sweating, start like choking. You know, their, their chef's collars would be choking them, I remember. And then they'd just say, and they'd be a deer in a headlights. And then this poor stage manager would say like, go. And then they'd stand there. So I realized what I was really good at was saying like, okay, you want to talk about this? And you talk about this. And we had recipe breakdowns. and But but still, what I loved more than cooking the food and what I was better at, I realized, was finding out what their story was, what made this interesting, mm. why I cared, and what was the tip. I could sort of suck all the information out of them and give them sound bites to, to just 
report back and which is basically producing, but I did not even know that was producing at the time. It was just sort of an innate thing because I was curious and interested in people and wanted to learn. So I did that for like a year and then I asked to get promoted and then they said, no, you're such a great sous chef. And then they Mm. sent me in the field with an unnamed talent who (laughs) got out there and um, we were shooting at uh, Betzer Vineyards with John Ash, which was incredible. It's the first time I learned about organic farming. This must have been 96 or something like that. The chef couldn't, none of his recipes work. The Reese Schoenfeld's wife, the owner of the network's wife was there and she's like, you need to make this work. I'm like, okay. I'd get up early. I'd write up recipes for him with the gardeners. I basically wrote a cookbook for this guy Mm. um, and propped everything and had the the wine winery chefs prep it all and we got through it all and shot outside and with sun poisoning and then I was like hey I am a producer now and so trial by fire this is extraordinary yeah it was fun it was great fun and the winery chefs were amazing and I learned about wine and I learned about that's the first time I saw 92 you know, versions of eggplant, which now are commonplace, but mm. back then this they was were all not. new. Everything, everything was, new. was new. I was so I felt so fortunate. It was just so it was so much fun. I mean, as hard as it was, it was just fun. I'd never been. I decided I could drive up the coast to Ukiah from San Francisco. That was ridiculous. I had no idea. I hadn't driven like ten years as a New Yorker. But anyway, <laughs> so I get up there. I eventually, they don't want to promote me anymore. Hmm. I heard of an opportunity at Lifetime, and they called me to be the sous chef. And I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be a sous chef anymore. I want to be a producer. And they said, you're not a producer. I said, okay, who are you hiring? They hired someone. I said, okay, call me in like a month when that doesn't work out. And they called me, and they said, okay, ah. you can be a producer <laughs> for the show. What was the show? It was, it was hosted by a soap opera star. Um, who was lovely, Robin, who was Heather from General Hospital. And it was called The Main Ingredient. And she got out there and just wanted to make everything low fat. So after one season- I remember the show. That yes. was done. And I recru- I was pushing Bobby and they kept saying, oh, no, no. Bobby Flay. Yeah, I was saying, mm-hmm. Bobby Flay would be great for this. No, 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 no. And then they- tested him. And this is, again, how I learned about TV. And they said, oh, his Q rating went through the roof, Lauren. I had no idea what a Q rating was. <laughs> but the focus group said, you know, the thing about Bobby is the women were like, oh, he's adorable. And my husband would want to have a beer with him, you know, and his mm. likability. So I brought him over there. And the crew was the crew who did Barbara Walters and started The View at the time. So that's really when I learned how to comport myself on a television set, because we finally had a real crew, not like a out of college operator. And that lasted like a year or so. Bobby hates me. I made him wear a toga. One day it, it resurged on the air like a year ago when he called me up. I hadn't spoken to him in ages. And he's like, you know, the things you made me do. And I said, yeah, but you went right back. And like, now look at you. And I got one of the Emmys was doing a grilling show for him years later. So oh, I feel like we're fabulous. even. And then that ceremoniously got canceled on my answering machine while I was on vacation. Mm. And so I had an old-fashioned Rolodex, you know, with cards written. And I was very scared of Martha Stewart. Um, I didn't think that was my world. I was not perfect. I was kind of a scrappy mess. And But I needed a job. And I cold-called um, a million people. And I cold-called Susan Spungen. And she said, come in. The timing was great. They were going from the weekly show shot at her house to this huge studio out in Westport. 
And I was hired to be a producer there, which because was you, you really amazing. were a producer. I really at this was point. a producer at that point. <laughs> and I was a producer, but in the world of Martha, mm. I had to learn a whole other way of being a producer because Martha's world is 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 what it is because of Martha. I mean, the first time I met her, I walked in and she said, Oh, so you're my new producer. Can you cut a lemon for me? And I thought, okay. And I cut the lemon. She's like, that's not how you cut a lemon. Who taught you to cut a lemon like that? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Lauren, I must really know what you did and how she fixed it. I just cut it in half and cut, you know, cut it in half, got the seeds out and made just like the, you know, uh, quarters. and you know, Oh, so you cut it in half lengthwise. Or lengthwise. Mm-hmm. And then I cut them into sections. I should have cut the ends off. You know how you would cut the ends off and mm-hmm. so it would stand up and then you cut it. I, to this day, I think I blocked it out because I never wanted to cut it again. I was like, "I'm here's your water with them in. My hand was shaking. <laughs> and she said, okay, well, we'll see how this goes. You know, and she was looming over me. Um, wow. But yeah, and that honestly was the scariest thing. It was uh, an hour syndicated show every day. Mm. I commuted from the Upper West Side to Westport, which was insane. No children. But obviously. you were married at this time. I was married. Mm-hmm. I was probably... <clears throat> 30 or something like that. Um, And it was extraordinary. Like I just, there was a room that had tissue paper in every single color out, you know, just everything was magical. Mm -hmm. It was, there was all clad for days, anything you wanted. You wanted a rose from Bogota, you flew it in. I didn't have a budget. I just Jean, I got to hang out with Jean Georges and Eric repair Mm -hmm. and follow them around and I mean, yes, they had to be nice to me because they wanted to be on the show, but they were glorious, generous, amazing mm-hmm. people. And I was able to be, you know, in that world. And it was amazing. And it was – I cried a lot. It was – I had a huge fancy office and an expense account and it was – And a box of tissues. And, handy and, at all times. Yeah, and a bottle of Windex the office came with. It had to be clean at all times. <laughs> very clean. I think a very clean person. Um, but, you know, Martha's – Martha's Martha, it basically, when people say, what was it like? I say it was everything that you expect and more and mm. so much more. But the standards were amazing. I was there as she gave me endless opportunities and believed in me, even as she was t- very, very tough. Um, but I was able to produce commercials. I was able to be there when she was building the website and when she was building the Kmart product line. I mean, to be around an entrepreneurial brain like that mm. and just see there, I was there pre-IPO and see how she and Sharon Patrick, how a businesswoman could build an empire, you know, and, you know, know absolutely every Latin name of the plant. <laughs> you know, like like she has, you know, uh, of, yeah, and her memory is just she knows everything. She does. She's like the smartest thing on earth. She is remarkable, Lauren. But so are you. <laughs> if I were to ask you of all of the TV stuff, because I want right. to also move on to your books and, and mm-hmm. uh, your great creativity. But of all the television things, if you were to name one that mm-hmm. was sort of the most meaningful or sexiest mm-hmm. or which one would you say? Um, it's really easy. Two part of them. After I left Martha and I had my second child, so now I had two kids under two. Mm. Um, this great <laughs> man, David Lang, took a crazy chance on me, and I did the first um, reality food show with Dweezil Zappa and Lisa Loeb, which was insane. Whoa! And I had 
I wasn't going to travel because I had a, a five month old baby and a you know, I don't know two and a half year old whatever son, and that was amazing because it was the first time I had worked for a, all men. It was through Broadway Video and. Um, except for uh, another great woman, Meredith Bennett, who went on to be Colbert's co-EP. That was an amazing experience because a man totally – and has went on to hire me for 10 years for all of my branded work. Um, mm. was, he's amazing. But the show – the best opportunity that happened was afterwards I got offered um, an opportunity for CBS News Productions, which was this arm of CBS, which had a lot of retired producers – and they wanted to start doing food shows, but they had news crews and they shot through the plastic sneeze guard at the cafeteria. So the Food <laughs> Network, Kathleen Finch said, you need to, Marjorie Baker, you need to meet Lauren Dean. And so the head, this amazing newswoman, again, another great woman who would, was, you know, um, sneaking tapes out of China for Nick, you know, back in the day in the news, was now running this department. Hmm. And... I created the Food Network Star show for her and sold it, but I didn't want to run it. I didn't want to run a but competition you created show. That I show? created and sold it with her. Yes. Wow. And I walked away from that for another opportunity. And she still had me back and she called me right when I was getting divorced. Um, I, I was like, what am I going to do now? And she said, you know, the cooking channel's starting up and they want us to do three shows and they want to show two words, food history. You're the only person I could think of to call. Will you mm. please come? And I said, like, come. Like, oh, my God. It's like <laughs> the best invitation ever. And I built this family of people that still are in my life where we ran three shows. I convinced Mo Rocca to be the host because wow. he was on CBS Sunday this morning. He did not need to be on a cooking show. Um, and it was called Foodography. And it's my it's my baby. It's it's old now, but it's I, the proud. It's the thing I'm most proud of because I we built it from scratch again. Didn't really fully know what I was doing, and they gave us very little money, and it was an hour show. But we, I found writers um, that I just once met, saw someone in the Broadway video office, and I was like, he looks like he'd be funny in a writer. And I had him come in and like, <laughs> I gave him, he laughs and he yells at me. And he's like, you gave me a pop quiz. And I said, I know, but I needed to know right away. And I hired these great writers who now are all, you know, a lot of them work at CPZ and do um, the, everyone feeds Phil, the Phil Rosenthal show on Netflix. Um, I found amazing new DPs that no one had ever known up and coming. Um, we got Sony to give us their, First version generation digital cameras. Uh, we can I convinced CBS and the Food Network to go digital, and Mo was amazing, and it was funny and beautiful. And we did these artisanal profiles about people, so we were able to celebrate all the work that people were doing all over the country and tell their stories. Mm. Um, so that's that was my baby. Wow. <laughs> that was Lauren. my big baby. He went on to do – and then we did um, uh, My Grandmother's Ravioli, which was his idea in his show, which is great too. But photography is the love of my TV life. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. But in addition to all of your creativity and storytelling, I'm picking up on something else that you seem to be really extraordinary at is uh, picking up other people's potential 
and uh, bringing them in, sort of almost discovering. That's a very yeah, rare, yeah. Very beautiful. It's, it's kind of like a fun hobby. I mean, I. It's also I, very generous thank of you, you to think about other people and and bringing them along with you. Yeah, I mean, I I love to mentor people. Um, I love to give people breaks just as you gave me mine. And um, I love to champion them. And I'm also known as like the most unpaid agent. I get everyone jobs. Like everyone's (laughs) going to call me now, but I'm like, I will always get someone a job or figure out where someone could go. But I do. It's funny. I, as I started to say, I'm trying to sort of reinvent myself a little and not stay in television um, full time anymore. And you assess what your skills are. And I ask some of the people like, well, you have to tell me like, what do I do well? Because I can't think about anything obvious other than the obvious, rather. (laughs) And um, one of the things that I love is I do, and I think that's why I was such a good producer, is I do see the potential and sort of like the best or what the person's potential or what they can or want to be and do and support them in that. To me, that's, that's the best thing I feel fortunate to be able to do, really. I did grow up in this, and that is something I would like to say in this, is that I did grow up in this world that millennials and everyone else sort of, you know, I I educated them and I was part of creating that. And it's interesting to be looking at work at this age and the responses and interactions that I get as well. Boy, do we need more Lauren Deans in the world. (laughs) Lauren, thank you. So when we come back, I do want to talk a little bit about your cookbooks, one of them a New York Times bestseller, and also to talk about what's meaningful to you now. Okay. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. So it seems impossible that you were able to write cookbooks and uh, award-winning cookbooks and best-selling cookbooks while you were doing all of this other stuff. So what was your first book? So my first book was Kitchen Playdates. So I, you know, cookbook junkie. At one point, I had, I don't know how many thousands of cookbooks, but I would spend all of my time in the weekends um, going to use bookshops and finding the, you know, every everything that you could ever want to own. And in fact, when I finally, I just moved and um, downsized, I donated like a hundred uh, cartons of cookbooks to the food and finance high school in New York that I think they should name the library after me. Totally. I just, of course I, they should. I just called it up. And I just <laughs> said, do you guys want these books? I, I was going to sell them. And then I thought like, no, they were, this is a whole world that it's, it was very hard for me to give up, but I had to. So anyway, so cookbooks were my life. They were my companions. I wanted to be a fiction writer, not a great fiction writer, better storyteller, but um I had just wanted to do a cookbook after Martha, after I had my two kids. And um, fortunately, um, a very good friend of mine is Pamela Cannon, who's an amazing cookbook editor. And she helped me um, get an agent. And I met with um, Bill LeBlond at Chronicle Books mm, and could not have best. found a better publisher. <laughs> um, and so what it was, I had just left Martha. So it's a little PTSD uh, now. It was an entertaining book called Kitchen Playdates, which was how to, you know, basically entertain once you had kids. And what I did was come up with all of these 
play dates. So if you wanted to teach your kids about spices, you could make spice paintings or make little like sandcastle spices. And then I would have a recipe companion that taught you like curried cauliflower and all of that. And it's still a little, as I say, PTSD mannered. And it was a lot of pressure in this day of Alison Roman and, you know, unfussy entertaining, which I love and think she's brilliant. I look back and, you know, laugh because of that, the pressure that I put on myself and people around me at that time came out of the book. But that's what was required then. That's what you needed to have and do. And, and I did, and it was fun. And it, Tina Rupp took beautiful pictures and, and it was in MoMA, which was shocking to me. That the book was sold at the Museum of Modern Art. And the Museum of Modern Art. And it was sold, um, you know, anthropology, wherever. And I had great opportunities from it. David Lang gave me a series at Walmart from it. I'm terrible on camera. I think I'm better. I don't suck, as they said, but my crew shot me and it was like easy and affordable meals, but not not my goal. Um, so I love that book. And and it, it didn't sell well. I was always a little early. Like if I had really didn't have the time, because at the time I was producing for Bobby Flay, writing the book at night, having the two kids, still sort of married-ish, <laughs> but not really. Um, and wow. Yeah. And so if I had had a blog, I always joke, somebody would have eventually bought it and I would have been retired by now. But that did not happen. But I do have this beautiful book that I'm proud of that um, call me and I'll get you a copy because I think they were like pulping and I have like 10 boxes in my house somewhere. So that was my first book, but it opened up a ton of doors for me and it was just something I had always wanted to do. So I was so proud of that. Then um, I got a job as a producer for Lifetime um, doing this series, Cook Yourself Thin, which was a British show, which was really fun. It had three female hosts. It was a hybrid reality show um, where you – it was basically cut half the fat and calories out of your favorite dishes and drop a dress size in six weeks. So we (laughs) shot – Hilarious. We shot at these people's homes. God bless you people who sat there in your pajamas eating ice cream to show me all of your bad habits because I wouldn't have the nerve to do that. We shot them there. We brought them to the studio with three chefs. We redid their recipes. And then we bopped back in six weeks later to see. And honestly, they all were great. And they, it, was, it was very life-changing. So as this was happening, I said, there was a book in London, a British book. We should do a book. And Lifetime was like, when it's a, we're in television business. And I said, no, you don't understand. Like, you'll make a lot of money. And they were like, no, no, no. I'm like, no, no, no. We're shooting. <laughs> we're making the food anyway. And this is Evan Sung's first cookbook, another oh, one who's a great photographer. photographer. It's at the New York Times and Melissa Clark. I said, I need like a really affordable <laughs> photographer. I have this idea. I'm going to make them do it. So he signed on. And then basically, since Lifetime was Disney and owned by Hyperion, eventually the right voice heard me. We wrote the book as we were shooting the 30 episodes show. And I still had my kids and was just getting divorced. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> We sold the show. The book went on to be a number one bestseller in Amazon and the Times. They Lifetime messed up. They aired all the shows. They binge dropped them before people were binge watching. And they decided not to pick up another season, but they ordered another book, which was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life because they basically, (laughs) I didn't have to do television. They gave me you know, um, in advance. And I rented a house in Montauk with my kids and spent a month writing the follow-up book. That was a gift. Mm. A Cook Yourself Thin Faster. (laughs) And that did not obviously do as well without the show, but that was that. And then the fourth book was a favor. Um, 
Pam Cannon was um, going to do wanted to do a book with the Meatball Shop guys. Um, Fun and they're amazing and they're great and they needed a writer and again still getting divorced, <laughs> still producing TV. Didn't want to do it, but one lived next door in the building and she said she would help. So I'm the co-author. I did very little heavy lifting on that, but um, it was a fun thing to do. What are you working on right now? Ah. So I so after all of that, I spent four years working at uh, two different British companies. I've worked at a lot of British companies: Tiger, Leopard, Lion. I don't understand; they're all big cats. But I did development. <laughs> it's a I, whole, just, I just got that. the Brits okay. and the big cats. Um, I did development for um, a couple of uh, companies, and I worked for this fabulous man, uh, Tony Tackaberry, who's the CEO of Lion Television. They're known for Cash Cab. Um, and I did development with them for two years. And I just, at the end of the two years, we were both kind of just a little bit of a break needed. Um, mm -hmm. Scripts was getting sold by Discovery. Things are changing. So I took a sabbatical. <laughs> I took a year oh. and I sold my house. I got my son into college. I got my daughter to a semester in Israel. I had a boyfriend, which is nice. <laughs> and I did some consulting and I'm really trying. I just applied this morning for a job. I feel like I should, you should hire me um, for a uh, <laughs> nonprofit. I really would like to work in the nonprofit food space is really what I want to do right now. Next. Wonderful. Oh, Lauren, this is such a gorgeous story <laughs> of um, being in the trenches and now giving back. This is a beautiful, beautiful journey. So speaking of journeys and next steps, let's talk about a legacy recipe. Okay. Do you have one to share? Um, I do, and it involves a lot of people because nothing in my life is a straight line. <laughs> um, and there's, this is in the cherry bomb piece, but there is a uh, polka dot Linzer tart uh, recipe that – was my mother's recipe that I used to make when I was a kid and I would, you know, wind up with like 500 degree burns from, you know, it's a tar pan where the bottom comes up and you're yes. wearing the, the fluted bracelet. And, <laughs> and, you know, so I wasn't very good at making it, but I got better. Um, ironically, it turned out that my mother took a baking class at the local library and the woman was Sylvia Weinstock before she was the famous Sylvia oh, Weinstock. My so this is actually started out as Sylvia Weinstock's Linzer Tort recipe. That's incredible. And of course she became the most famous, famous wedding, cake wedding cake maker in Dorian. the world. Yes. And she would lug her KitchenAid to the high school and it was crazy. So I used to make this tart all the time, and my cousin Barry, um, who got me the film Jobs, Barry Sonnenfeld, um, Men in Black, Mr. Adams Family, he loved this. So I would only – it was such a pain to make. I would only make it for him and, like, deliver it in a pizza box when he was, like, getting on some private plane or to, to go somewhere for his birthday. And then when I went to write the book – I was like, lattice work is too hard. And it's funny, nowadays in- Lattice work, meaning the little yeah, strips, the on, strips top on top of the And so what I did at the time, I thought I was brilliant and clever. And I cut out um, like cookies and made polka dots on top. And it looked like <laughs> a Jonathan Adler tart, which it's very funny now because I just watched a So Yummy Instagram video or YouTube video where they show 900 ways to make clever tart toppings in 48 seconds. So it just goes to show you full circle how the slow evolution for me to get there and now today it's instantly – everyone's talents are instantly available. 
That is so true. I know it really makes you um, wistful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. And I'm like, it's amazing the speed. And, you know, I'm just so happy there's an enormous audience and appetite for all things food. And it isn't so rarefied and hard to break into, I think, now, which is great. So the legacy recipe is your polka dot Linza tart, of course, that's uh, made with like an almond crust. Uh, and this a, is actually layer... walnuts because walnuts, that's okay. what Sylvia did. <laughs> um, and cinnamon. I cut some of the recipes, uh, some of the sugar out of it. And it used to be with apricot jam. And then I do it with Linzer. And it's it's in Kitchen Playdates. And I'm happy to, you know, have it posted on my Wonderful. Instagram, your Instagram, and share it's, it. It's one of my favorites. But just the, uh, the actual creativity in the dish really describes you. I think that tart is a metaphor for who you are, meaning that something, you know, delicious and creative, but it wasn't quite working and you didn't quite know what you were doing and necessity led to something really clever and uh, in- and very Instagrammable. So that's Thank very you, you Lauren. <laughs> what does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I went back and forth saying, should I listen to what people have said? Should I not listen to what people have said? <laughs> um, I, for me... I think knowing that there's a place for a woman in a kitchen, whether it's a physical kitchen in a beautiful Instagrammable loft, or if you're in a, you know, rental apartment where your bathtub's next to your sink, if those still exist. I had one, my friend had one once. Um, I think, and if you actually, let me, let me sort of define that a little more. I think a one-woman kitchen means doing the best that you can in the world with food, with communication, with connecting, without berating and beating yourself up that it's not good enough, it's not enough. The best that that kitchen can do for you and you can do for your kitchen, I guess. Wonderful. Lauren, I'm sure so many people are going to want to be in touch with you. What is the best way to connect? Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, you can email me at ld at laurendean.com. D-E-E-N. Yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> Dean has two E's. It's extremely annoying, but it's laurendean.com. Um, on Instagram, I'm at lauren.dean, um, where I spend time. I am terrible on Twitter and Facebook exhausts me. So, But I'm happy to be of help. Thank you. So thank you to you, Lauren Dean, for joining me today on One Woman Kitchen. And thank you to all of you for joining Lauren and me. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden. Written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.